This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about how you work. It certainly changed in 2020, right? In ways that you didn't think would happen. I mean, spent years going to the office and next thing you know, the office is, you know, the little tiny nook that you've got left over in your house. And all of a sudden that's where you're working from. But as things try to get back to normal, more and more employers are kind of getting employees to come back to the office. But do you want to? Well, a new survey commissioned by ADP Canada, which is a company that specializes in human resources and payroll services, shows that people most definitely want more flexibility in how they work. But what does that look like? Joining us now to talk more about the survey is Heather Haslam, Vice President of Marketing at ADP Canada. Heather, thank you for being here. Jimmy, thank you so much for having me. So Heather, what is it that people do want? Like how, how do they want to work these days? What came out of the survey is uh, quite clear, that remote work is here to stay, or rather a good portion of us certainly want it to be. Uh, 45% of working Canadians, uh, represented by those that participated in the survey, said that they would prefer to work remotely every day or three to four times per week. Now, that's a lot. That would drastically change most workplaces. It certainly would. What's interesting about working remotely is there's this sometimes assumption or connotation that it impacts productivity. So whether or not you're, you're thinking about the number of hours that you work or the quality of the work, even the output, if the assumption is that you're not as productive when you're working remotely, turns out that's not the case. As part of the survey, we asked our participants, both employees and managers, and the majority said that it has not decreased. It's about stayed the same. Right. So working remotely doesn't actually negate productivity. See, I think that's a lesson that a lot of probably employers and managers have learned this year because, you know, even at work, people are social. They're still on social media doing other stuff. They're still chatting. There's still the same kind of barriers to getting more work done. Certainly. Um, but we also checked in on the survey thing is that um, we checked in on stress. And it turns out that managers reported more stress. Oh. And so it could be that they're the ones that are dealing with this, um, with this issue between productivity and the assumptions around working remotely. Interesting. Was there an age breakdown with this, Heather? Like, d depending on how old the workers were, what did they prefer? Yeah, we looked at a number of different things. What's interesting is that younger workers, so workers between the ages of 18 and 34, actually prefer to work remotely three to four days per week, as well as they're more optimistic about the fact that they believe the workplace will change forever. Interesting. Okay, so younger people, definitely more adaptable. But does that mean that this is the way it's going to stay, Heather? Is there any indication from the survey about what the next few months might look like? 
Um, well, we're not sure. We, we looked at uh, a number of things, including uh, anxiety and uh, what's driving concern about returning to work. Mm-hmm. So a good portion of respondents, 15% said, I don't want to return. And 12% really highlighted high levels of anxiety around the return to the workplace. And what came out of that in terms of the reasons, you know, seemed somewhat intuitive. The balance between caring for loved ones and returning uh, outside of the home, um, whether or not my employer is going to take the necessary precautions and all of, you know, the tools that need to be set up in order to keep me safe. And as well, a good portion of those, um, you know, certainly more than half, highlighted a serious concern about just contracting the the virus itself. Right. Now, I'm not everybody can do this though, right? And that's the other thing. I think a lot of people felt like before this happened, well, my job, I could not possibly work from home. My job wouldn't allow it. Is there still that perception out there? Are there still jobs where they working from home just doesn't work? Uh, certainly. I mean, it, it varies by industry and by what type of work. But one of the things that's coming out loud and clear is that people are really starting to see work as an activity, not as a location. Interesting. That that has a lot of repercussions then for employers, doesn't it? It certainly does. Looking forward long-term, and so as we return to the workplace, whether or not we're talking about tomorrow or next week or next month or in the years to come, one of the things that we looked at was what is it that people are looking for? And loud and clear, they're looking for openness and flexibility around working remotely and flexibility around hours. So still almost 50% of us want to, you know, prefer to work traditional business hours, but there's a huge portion. And again, um, more in our younger uh, respondents that really want to have flexibility around when it is that they're doing their work. Okay. So if you're a company manager or an owner or business person, then not only do you have to worry about keeping the business going at this point, but you're, you have to think about what that business is going to look like because not every employee is going to want to make, have it go back to the way it was before. That's exactly it. This is about looking forward and adapting. What, uh, as ADP, as an HR company, a lot of what we're doing to support our clients, and, and this is part of our outreach as well, is looking at what are the things that should be done? And it's clear that employers that embrace flexibility within their culture can improve employee retention, can improve, improve performance and engagement. All of the things that make our work life that much better. All right, Heather, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. That's Heather Haslam, Vice President of Marketing at ADP Canada. They are a company that specializes in human resources and payroll services. And they did this survey among employees asking them, you know, what is it that, how is it your workplace is is working right now and what do you want to see in the future? And they found that 61% of the workers between the ages of 18 to 34 that they surveyed said they prefer to work remotely at least three days a week. Now that does go down for workers who are over the age of 35. That was 43% of those workers said they would prefer to work remotely at least three days per week. So there's a lot of adjustment that's going to have to be made. Does that mean that companies don't need as much you know, workspace, essentially? They don't need to pay rent, perhaps, on such large spaces anymore. Are they comfortable with allowing so many people to work from home? Does that work? How do you build company culture that way if you're kind of just starting out? All these questions moving forward. If you want to weigh in with what your experience has been like working from home, you can email me, simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. 
All right, we're going to talk about mandatory masks out there. More and more places are requiring that if you're going to go inside, you need to wear a mask. Nikki Reitmeyer joins us now for more on this. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting. Your last guest was saying how more people are working from home now, and Uber is a company that has certainly felt that impact. They're down 56% in usage from the year previous because, I mean, nobody's going to concerts anymore. We're not going to big sporting events, and so many people aren't going to work anymore. So Uber is certainly a business that's felt that impact, but they're still making changes to accommodate the times we live in for the drivers who are still out there on the roads. And they're one of these companies who has had a a mask policy in place for a while now. If you want to catch an Uber or even, you know, a Lyft, you got to wear a mask. But of course, we know not everybody's going to be following these rules. and, And this certainly has been one of those interesting challenges in the pandemic, hasn't it? Companies trying to police how they'll deal with customers who don't follow the rules. So Uber has a a creative policy. They now are requiring passengers who in the past have been reported by drivers to not be wearing masks to take a selfie of themselves wearing a mask before they're able to get into their next Uber. Really? Yeah. So So you have to prove it essentially. You can prove that, okay, no, I'll be good. I promise. Here's a picture of me wearing a mask. Exactly. Okay. Okay. I own a mask. You know, you take the picture. I'm wearing it right now, and you can send it into the company, and then they'll say, "Okay, your your next yeah. ride has been approved, and the driver's on the way." It's interesting that so many more retail stores and companies are getting involved in this situation. You know, like I, I phoned a store yesterday where I have to go in and pick up something on Thursday. I have something on hold, and they actually said to me on the phone, "I said, okay, I'll be in on Thursday to get that." And they said, "Okay." And just a reminder, you have to wear a mask if you come into the store. Oh. And I said, "Well, of course, yeah, sure." I mean, I've always got a mask with me, but I just thought, oh, interesting that they're even letting people know on the phone. Like, don't even think about coming in unless you've got a mask. It's really nice to get that heads up, though. I know I went out yesterday. I always have my mask in my purse. And for some reason yesterday, I didn't. And I I just needed to run out to the dog food store. And I got there and I thought, no, no. I forgot my mask. So, I mean, they they didn't have a mask policy at that particular store. But I I still felt guilty about it because I have become very used to, to having it now. And I usually always keep it in my purse with me. But I mean, yeah, certainly sometimes you can get caught if you're out and about and you happen to forget it and you go, oh, I keep them everywhere. I keep like, there's two extra ones in my car. There's a bunch of them in my purse, like just in case, because you don't know. They're the new, they're the new chapstick. Yes, they are. (laughs) (laughs) One in your purse, one in your pocket, one in your car. That is so true. I have them everywhere, (laughs) just in case. And now it's some some stores are even changing. Like, look at Starbucks, right? Like people have been used to going to Starbucks in the last couple of months, but even now they're saying you have to wear a mask. Yeah, they're changing their policy. So it aligns a little bit more with what their policy in the United States has been. So here in Canada, starting mid-September, September 14th, you're going to have to wear a mask if you go to Starbucks. So yeah, a great example of a company who's been updating it and changing their policies. If you don't have a mask, let's say, oh no, you forgot to bring it with you. Well, you can still use their drive through location. You can still do curbside pickup. You can still order for delivery. But if you plan on going into the store and ordering from the counter, then you have to wear a mask. And at first I thought, wait a minute here, you know, Starbucks, it's similar to, you know, a cafe, a restaurant. How could you drink a coffee when you're wearing your mask? And then I realized, oh, yeah, they haven't done in-person sit-down service in ages. (laughs) In a while, Every time you go into a Starbucks, yeah, they have all the chairs upside down and they haven't had people sitting in in that business for months now. 
Exactly. And I think that's the thing. Like we're adapting to that. You know, and Nikki, you've been in Japan, right? You went to Japan. I assume. Um, Did, have I've you not been to there? Taiwan. I've been to Korea. Right. I've been to China. I have not yet been to Japan, although I, I really want to go. When you go to Japan, uh, you can't walk around and eat food. You're oh. ex- yeah, you can't do that. If you buy food from a place, you have to stand. They, the place that I was at, they have like a tape area marked off on the floor. You stand there, you eat whatever or drink whatever it is, and then you don't wander down the street drinking a coffee in Japan. That's oh, just, that's that is not done. So obviously, Great. it's a lot easier to walk around with a mask on. We're so used to walking and drinking and walking and eating and all of that. That's what sometimes makes the mask difficult. But other other jurisdictions, they've already got this figured out. My my parents would love that rule. I was never allowed to eat and walk when I was a kid. Like ever, <laughs> sit at the table. No, sit at the table. I can <laughs> the see that. Are very strict in my household. It sounds like it. I know. So yeah, yeah it, no, that that's sense. the uh, that's the other thing is that, like maybe you're just gonna have to adapt what you do. Like sit down on a bench, have your coffee or whatever it is, put your mask back on, and then keep going. Yeah, and it's it's not hard to make those little changes. I think at first, you know, we thought, oh, you know, I don't want to adapt to this or I don't want to adapt to that or, you know, that sounds absurd. That sounds ridiculous. What do you mean I have to do this? But once you start doing it, it really hasn't been too difficult to adapt and to change. I mean, look, if you're going to tell me that I have to just simply sit for an extra two or three minutes and and eat my bagel before I keep on walking, it's not, you're, it's not, you know, that you're not asking me to change the world here. Yeah, yeah exactly. just change a really small behavior. So, yeah, interesting and doable, and it'll certainly be interesting to see how our, our culture continues to adapt. I mean, even IKEA is another location where masks there are going to be mandatory now. So if you're going there to pick up, you know, of course, kids going to uh, university students. I was going to say moving into dorms, but I guess no one's really doing that this year. Nope. But <laughs> nope. typically, typically that's what you'd have to do. IKEA too. And listen, if Gene Simmons can put on a mask and, and rock out in Whistler, then I think uh, everybody else can put on a mask too. Nikki. Yeah, Gene Simmons <laughs> spotted in Whistler. That's right. Thanks so much. Thanks, Simi. That's our Nikki Wright Meyer. This is Mornings with Simi. You know when you see those stories about someone who has kept a McDonald's hamburger for like 20 years and the hamburger still looks the same and you think, ew, gross, who would eat that? Turns out our next guest would probably eat that. In fact, it's uh, actually the basis of a new show that is premiering on the History Channel tonight. It's about two guys who are going to find and yes, then eat really old food. (laughs) I don't even know. This makes my stomach get upset just thinking about it. But let's talk to Josh McGuga about this as a collector and a half of the duo of Eating History. Josh, thanks for being here. Sure. Great intro. How's Uh, your stomach? uh, It's a a wild ride. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. How is your stomach (laughs) at this point? Stomach feels fine. I mean, there was definitely days uh, that it wasn't. Um, But... uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it's a wild adventure. We had a medic and a toxicologist on set just in case because Old Smokey is the way more calculated uh, food devourer while I'm more of the uh, just jump right in and, and eat it. I kind of have been my whole life, but, uh, you know, we're okay. After 10 episodes, we're, we're okay. So, so. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. Tell me about some of the stuff that you guys actually ate. Like, we are talking decades-old food here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, everything that goes back, you know, uh, tooth powder from the 20s and 30s. Um, you know, we got uh, Wheaties from the 40s. We got cod liver oil from before the turn of the century. We have hardtack from the 50th anniversary of the Civil War. 
we have first generation Pringles from the seventies. Uh, you know, Batman cereal from the first Batman in 1989. So we run, you know, the time wheel every episode and really just, uh, you know, eat our way through history. It's great. Josh, you must have had a moment, though, with one of these products at some point, like the Civil War hardtack, <laughs> where you just looked at it and said, I don't know if I can do this. Oh, yeah. Um, so the, the Reggie bar, the Reggie Jackson uh, candy bar, it, you know, I, I was kind of like, I, maybe that one's not for me. The smell of it, um, you know, we got the, the, the probably the funniest day on set was when we opened this uh, 1970s box of Chef Boyardee canned lasagna. And just the the smell when we opened that, that meat sauce can, oh, that, that, will, that smell will stay with me forever. That's and, not a good uh, sign, Josh. Was, that was the one on the... <laughs> Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that was the day the toxicologist just yelled, don't eat that. Oh, okay. So that's what I'm curious about. So on the show, are there moments where, yeah, you do make the decision that, you know, this probably isn't a good idea. Oh yeah. Yeah. It happened multiple times. I think there's a few items that may have may just be on the cutting room floor that may never make it to air simply because we definitely couldn't eat it. And there was definitely an argument from my end of like, I mean, is this something I want to risk my life for? Exactly. Is, is this the item that does it? I don't think, you know, I, th- I think my calculated nature of, if it's something that is so legendary, like it is a piece of pie from the Titanic that was in a plate that has been stuck under a piece of metal at the bottom of the ocean and we somehow brought it up and it is fine, then yeah, maybe I would take that risk. But if it's, you know, a can of, of old sardines. No, I'll probably skip on that one. Do yeah. we, Josh, do you think we underestimate how many people out there are actual food collectors? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, since the debut of the show here in the States and, you know, internationally and now Canada, uh, we've gotten so many people reaching out to us that have said, you know, I've had this stuff in my basement forever. I didn't think anybody would actually want to try it. Can we send it to you? And that's, you know, that's the show. We meet so many different collectors on the show and, you know, food historians, people that are so intrigued by the aging process of food. And, you know, like I say, which my wife hates when I say it, um, is that, you know, expiration dates are just suggestions. So, you know. <laughs> well, that's season two, I think, right there. Um, Josh, thanks so much for our time, your time and good luck with the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. That's Josh McCuga. He's a collector. He's also one half of the duo hosting the show Eating History. Premieres on the History Channel tonight, actually, uh, at 10 p.m. And they go and find old food and they eat it. Everything from a box of Wheaties from 1947. And yes, a can of new Coke, too. You can check that out on the History Channel tonight. This is Mornings with Simi. All this week and next, of course, we're talking about going back to school. This is a huge undertaking. We really can't talk about it enough at this point because it's really going to determine how the entire province manages to cope with COVID-19 and whether or not we can keep enough people safe in this pandemic situation. So obviously there's a lot of stresses and anxiety around this. So we're uh, later on in this show, we are going to be talking with the superintendent of the Vancouver School District about how they're planning things. Uh, but there's so many different aspects to the discussion. And we're going to talk about another one of those aspects right now, actually. We're talking about kids with complex learning needs. 
where do they get the support from for these back to school plans? Where do they still need support and what resources are out there? Joining us now is Tracy Humphreys, who's the founder and chair of BC Ed Access. Tracy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Simi. Now, I know your organization has been around for about six years or so, but tell me about the work that it does. Yeah, so um, we are parents and guardians of children with disabilities and complex learning needs from all over BC. And some of the work we do is um, supporting each other. You know, we have a private Facebook support group. We run a conference every year on education advocacy. And, uh, you know, we work with the government and we discuss the needs of students with disabilities and uh, yeah, I mean, okay. lots of stuff. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. All right, let's talk about then the plans where they are right now. They're different district by district, but how do these impact kids with complex learning needs? Um, the thing that's complicated for, you know, I think that uh, things have gotten to be more and more similar for all people with children. Um, but beyond not being able to make a decision, not having the hybrid options or remote options that some people are looking for, um, as you said, um, knowing what the supports will be, even in school or through a hybrid or remote option in any given district is really hard to find out right now. Schools don't really know and they haven't been able to tell families. Do you feel like maybe like the kids who really need the help the most are the ones who are going to have to wait the longest to get this information? Yeah, it it does feel a lot like that. You know, it's interesting you're going to be talking to Vancouver later on because there's a family in Vancouver that I just talked to who's, you know, the Ministry of Education made it very, very clear that five days a week full-time is to be offered to students with disabilities and complex learners and vulnerable students. And uh, this parent's kid has been offered two days a week. And so it, we're struggling. <laughs> No kidding. understand how that happens. Now, what would help then for parents? Do they need more online learning help? Um, I think that they need a variety of different things. You know, a lot of kids, they need their connection with their regular education assistant because that sort of continuity in that relationship is going to really help them if, you know, if whether they're learning in person or at home with the stress of the pandemic and how everything has changed, that familiarity is really important. Um, but yeah, in some cases, you know, there's there's kids in high school who are looking at, um, you know, the way that they have rearranged things. They're losing their block where they get assistance with executive function. And, uh, you know, if they have learning disabilities, that can be, you know, a huge gap. It's something that they really, really need. And suddenly it's going to be taken away because there's not enough uh, school blocks. Yeah. Or they'll have to give up an elective or even a required course. Now, I know, Tracy, one of the big reasons why this pushes on to get kids back at school is because there's so much fear about kids falling behind, right? And so we know that's a big concern, but how much more of a concern is that for kids who have these complex learning needs? I I mean, I have to say that's always been a concern for these kids. So I don't know that it's um, a bigger concern than it ever was for some kids, certainly. But uh, the, the real thing is, for me, I'm not understanding how school districts don't seem to have adequately considered these back-to-school plans for students with disabilities. You know, we hear them saying a lot about support for inclusion, but it isn't being put into practice. What would and your so advice? Advocacy always happens. What would your advice be then to a district that is, <laughs> is still facing all these outstanding questions? I, you know, they need to reach out to families because it, 
as we've seen, you know, one size does not fit all. And the idea that, you know, sending kids back to school in person is the most necessary thing for all children isn't necessarily true. And districts need to be reaching out. They know who these kids are. They need to make those connections, talk to the families and find out what they need and how they can do things. And if they do that with kids with disabilities, it'll probably set things up better for all students. Is there a district that you can think of where you go, okay, why can't every district be like this? Well, I mean, (laughs) that's always hard. I I looked at Burnaby's plan recently, and Mm -hmm. it seems to be good. Um, They they have been doing exactly what I'm talking about, the outreach and the connecting, and they do seem to be considering. And, you know, we don't know necessarily what it's like on the ground, but it's nice to see districts talking about students with disabilities, so many of them don't even mention them in their communications. Well, we'll see what Vancouver has to say today about that. Tracy, thanks for your time on this. Thank you so much, Tim. That's Tracy Humphreys, the founder and chair of BC Ed Access. They are an organization that helps parents advocate essentially for kids who have more complex learning needs and need more help essentially uh, from the school board. A lot of them do feel at this point that they are being left behind or left out of these plans for getting kids back to school. So we do have a lot of questions about that. And as mentioned, we are speaking to the superintendent for the Vancouver School District uh, coming up. Listen, all sorts of parents have questions about what's going on in Vancouver. We talked to earlier. We'll be talking to other districts as well in the days ahead. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So much discussion over the last four or five days about the death of Chadwick Boseman. I myself was just shocked when I heard about it, that this man had been fighting cancer for four years, hadn't said a word publicly, continued to make movies, continued to visit children in the hospital who had cancer, and just continued and soldiered on all while fighting colon cancer. Now, the one little positive thing that's come out of all this is a a whole new level of awareness when it comes to colon cancer. So we wanted to take a moment here to talk about that. Barry Stein joins us, the Director of Colorectal Cancer Canada. Barry, thank you for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Have you had a lot more interest uh, since people have been hearing about the death of Chadwick Boseman? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was shocking news, as you said, and uh, the fact that he was very young is another factor. African-American, another factor. Uh, In terms of early age onset, uh, it's really um, hit me home personally, actually, because I was also diagnosed when I was just 40 years old, just turning 41. So um, understandably, Um, uh, I related to this situation, but I have to tell you all over the world, all our colleagues in the different patient associations, physicians, uh, uh, on all networks, uh, you know, are talking about it right now. And while March is our awareness month and we got cut off by COVID, Mm -hmm. um, we're very grateful that we can bring, uh, for the wrong reasons, unfortunately, 
that we can bring some attention back to the second biggest cancer killer in Canada. Right. I obviously take this opportunity to do that, right? Uh, and also, is this a way to reach those younger people? Right. Well, something that not everybody knows is that the fastest growing group of people who are touched uh, by colon cancer, and in particular, rectal cancer between the ages of 28 and 39 years old, this is the fastest growing group. Granted, there's about 1,500 people in Canada only, thankfully, each year that are touched by colorectal cancer. Of the approximately 29,600 people, um, but um, it doesn't make it any easier uh, in that regard. Our screening programs, fortunately, have helped to bring down some of the mortality rate. People are getting screened, although, again, during COVID, those programs have been suspended and their backlogs have been caused, and we expect to see a fallout from that in terms of more advanced mm. diseases and mortality. But um, you know, there are things you can do. It is preventable, treatable, and beatable. And for this young population, what we call early age onset or never too young is how we call it, um, we have to be aware of the signs and the symptoms of the disease. And that is uh, diarrhea or constipation, which is not normal, uh, change in bowel habits, smaller uh, and thinner stools, blood in your stool, of course, whether red or black, feeling tired all the time, you may be anemic, uh, being nauseous or vomiting uh, unexpectedly and really on a constant basis. These are signs that there is a problem, not necessarily colorectal cancer, but a problem that you have to be diagnosed for. Right. So the symptoms there, people really have to be aware, right? And I, I think there's a tendency as well, Barry, with younger people where they kind of dismiss symptoms, right? They tell themselves, oh, that's nothing to worry about. Well, let me tell you, when I was uh, uh, 40 years old, everybody said, ah, hemorrhoids, uh, you know, forget about it. I put it off for a couple of years before I couldn't ignore when I found that I had a tremendous amount of blood in my stool and uh, really had to do something. And then everybody was shocked. How could such a young person have advanced disease? And actually, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. It had already gone to my liver and to my lungs. And this was back in 1995. Wow. And uh, so it, it is a, a point, I guess, to, to bring out that notwithstanding the fact that you have cancer, colon cancer in particular, it is something that we can treat better today than ever before. Mm -hmm. More people are surviving. It doesn't always have to end in a tragic way, but unfortunately it does too often. Well, Barry, I'm so glad to hear that you are doing better. Uh, thank you for joining us today to talk more about this. Thank you. And I just want to bring attention to our survey for early age onset, Never Too Young, which is on our website at colorectalcancercanada.com. We really want to know how younger people touched by colon cancer are doing and from their caregivers as well. All right. So, Let's get people involved in that. Barry, thank you. Thanks so much. This is Mornings with Simi. The Learning from Home Transition Program was developed in response to parent requests for an option which allowed them a little more time in having their children return to in-person instruction. 
All right, that is Vancouver School Board Deputy Superintendent David Nelson last night with an update on the district school reopening plan, which of course gets underway next week. So we thought, let's get an update for you. Let's put that information out there. So joining us now is Superintendent Suzanne Hoffman for more on this. Thank you very much for being back with us. No problem. Thank you, Simi. Now, last time we talked to you, you were going to hear from parents, you were going to do a survey and find out what it was that parents were saying. What have you heard? So we've heard that the majority of our parents and students will be returning or planning to return to school uh, in September. But we did hear that there is a need for another option where families are not quite ready to yet send their children back. And so we've looked to implement a transition option for our school communities. And do we know what that's going to look like right now? We do. We are um, mostly it is learning from home with the support of families, with check-ins, Uh, throughout the week a couple of times with our schools and what we are looking to do is keep our students connected to their schools to their teachers Um, and the big concern that we had heard is parents wanted the assurance that they would be able to have their spot or their placement in their school that they're currently enrolled so this will allow them to do that they can still have their child learn from home with the option they're going to still be able to check in at school absolutely okay and will that be rolled out in time for the beginning of the school year Uh, What we are doing is we are looking to have our face-to-face, those returning to school, start first and then on September 21st be able to fully implement this plan. So we need a little more time to make sure we have all things in place and staff on board and supporting all of the model, um, and then we will roll that out one week later. Now, what about the concerns around kind of physical distancing in the classrooms? Is that being worked out as well? Absolutely. That's another, the health and safety protocols that we are looking to put in place are a top priority for us as a school district. And on a school-by-school, class-by-class basis, uh, administrators and teachers, when they return, will look at classroom space and the ability to physically distance as much as possible. Certainly by having a transition option available, we will probably have slightly fewer class um, numbers, and so we will be able to use extra space at the beginning of the school year. Okay, so you are hoping to spread out the kids a little bit more, because that's a huge concern that I hear from parents. Absolutely, and we've done work over the summer to uh, remove excess furniture from our classrooms so that uh, the space that we do have available is able to be maximized. And again, that varies from school to school. Some of our schools are very full, others have space. So what are we going to do in the schools that are very full? Absolutely. So we've taken some measures, as I said, to remove the furniture. We would look at using uh, learning from the outside, which is one of the priorities that our board has put forward, and using uh, space out on our playgrounds and our fields as much as possible. And then other spaces within the schools, gymnasiums, the learning commons or libraries, spaces such as that we would look to use as well. Okay. What about kids uh, with more complex learning needs? I mean, we were talking to uh, BC Ed Access earlier. They have a lot of concerns. What about the plans for those kids? Absolutely. So we will do personal reach outs to uh, families with students that do have complex needs to check in, number one, to see how they're doing and then see what kind of supports that they are looking for from the school. And we will work through their needs and support those families and students Um, as much as we would regularly, so check-ins with resource teachers and support staff, ensuring that they are taken care of and that their learning needs are met. And does that mean five days a week? Again, depending on the choice of families, because we want to respect what it is that families are looking for, but we will look to support the students, and uh, having students come into school five days a week for sure is part of those complex learners' programs, 
um, that we will continue to support. And what are you hearing from teachers as well? Do you expect that some teachers will not be able to return to the classroom? How is that all being worked out? So certainly we have um, our processes in place with our HR department, and we are working incredibly closely with our two teachers' unions um, on the return to school. And certainly we are hearing that there are concerns from schools, uh, from teachers, pardon me, about the return, but we are looking to work through supports and what it is that we can do where there are needs to accommodate what that could look like or how we can support them through leaves that they may need to take uh, to support their own wellness if they have health uh, issues themselves. But certainly want to work with teachers and uh, support them through this process. Right. Like are there options, say, if a teacher doesn't feel if they have health issues safe coming back to the classroom, can those teachers then work with the online kids? That's things that we're looking into at this point in time. Our number one priority is keeping the students connected to their own school and their own teacher. So that is a priority for us. But with our unions, with HR, we will work through what it is that we can do to take care of the needs of teachers. But certainly we want to have our teachers come in, go through the health and safety protocols in our schools, site health and safety committees. They will have school level plans. So I think those need to be worked through first. And then we can see what we need to do to continue to make sure that everyone feel safe in their work environment. So are the teachers responsible for kind of working out what's going to happen in their classrooms or is that something the the like principal and administrators are looking after at this point? Um, certainly our principals and vice principals have been in their schools already and have done a great deal of work and we have a 44-page health and safety uh, plan for our district that has specific guidelines that schools will need to implement and then every site within our district has a health and safety committee And they will come in on that first day of school and go through the protocols and then do walkthroughs and go class by class through the hallways, making sure that directional arrows, hand sanitizing stations, all the things that need to be in place are in place. So that'll be a team approach at the school level. And so does that have to, I feel like teachers still have a lot of questions, right, Suzanne? So does that, they have to wait and see what happens when they do come back to school next week? Certainly they can reach out now. I know that some have been in touch with their principals and principals are reaching out to the staff already. Um, So if they are interested in knowing more in advance, they're welcome to do so. And I know many have. They are incredibly committed professionals. Um, But if not, then next week when the return date for work starts, uh, staff will come together and have virtual meetings, face-to-face meetings, physically distanced around what the health and safety protocols are. Right. Do you anticipate keeping all teachers on staff? Like usually we hear about layoffs, especially with not as many international students this year. What is that situation? Well, certainly we are uh, wanting to keep all of our students in the Vancouver School District. So that's a priority so that we can maintain uh, our existing staffing levels. Uh, we will have to evaluate come next week about the number our number of attending students and to look at our staffing levels at that time. So that's is a bit of an unknown right now, but it is our intention to have all kids back and all staff return, and we're hopeful we can do that. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Where can parents go online for more information? Certainly our website has all of the documentation, infographics, uh, the letters, the health and safety plans. So I would encourage all of our community staff and parents and students to take a look at our website. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Amy. That is Suzanne Hoffman, Vancouver Superintendent for the Vancouver School District, going through you know what they are working on right now. They've heard from parents, and they know that they have to offer some kind of online uh, version for students. As you heard them say, they are working towards that as well. This is Mornings with Simi. 
You know, we talk an awful lot about how adults are coping with and dealing with this pandemic, but do kids talk about how they're feeling? Do we stop and often ask them that exact question or kind of pull the answers out of them? It can be tough sometimes. There's a new report from Children First Canada that actually kind of delves into that question. So joining us now is the founder and CEO of Children First, Sarah Austin. Sarah, thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Now, tell me about this survey. Did you try to get kids to open up? Well, Racing Canada 2020 is the third in a series of annual reports that looks at the health and well-being of children. But this year in particular, given the impact of COVID-19, we wanted to look at the ways in which children's physical and mental health has been impacted in the past six months. And the findings are really quite startling. Children have been hit hard with issues like food security, uh, abuse and violence in their home, and, and significant threats to their mental and physical health. And so did you get them to respond to this survey so they opened up? Well, the report contains a a wide range of of data, a lot of which is collected by Stats Canada uh, through surveys with children and with parents over the summertime and in recent months. Uh, There's also data from organizations like Kids Help Phone, um, and and other surveys that have done been done throughout the, the pandemic, and really it paints a pretty startling picture. And in some ways, it, it also shows that there's been a bit of a disconnect between what children are feeling and what their parents perceive to be happening. And uh, particularly when it comes to children's mental health, that uh, the parents are, are not as connected with uh, their, their mental health of their children as perhaps they should be. Yeah, let's talk about that then. So how do kids, how do they report their mental health? How are they feeling? Well, close to 60% of children ages 15 to 17 said that their mental health is either somewhat worse or much worse than it was prior to physical distancing. And we know that that's also true for, for even younger children. We've been speaking with, with kids across the country uh, through our Young Canadians Parliament over the past several months. And we're hearing that even children as young as seven and eight are really feeling the, the emotional toll of the pandemic. And it's it's not surprising in the sense that children have been cut out of their schools for six months. They've uh, been experiencing social isolation isolation from their friends and extended family members. Uh, in many cases, they've been confined at home. We saw a huge drop-off in children's physical activity. I mean, barely 5% of kids meeting their daily physical activity guidelines, which not only impacts their physical health, but also takes a toll on their mental health as well. Now, we also know that one of the big kind of reasons for the push to get kids back into school is because it's where we can get an eye on kids, right? Where if they need help, if there's a bad situation at home, then then we know that. And we've been missing that for the last six months or so. Did that come up as well? Are, are kids worried about those situations they find themselves in at home? Absolutely. Child abuse has been a grave concern for us from the very outset of this pandemic. For many kids, home is not a safe place. We know that even before COVID-19 hit, the one in three Canadians has experienced some form of abuse before the age of 15. And the vast majority of that happens in the context of their family or with somebody that they know and is close to their family. So we've been worried that these issues have been going under the radar for months on end. And now with children returning to school um, and gradually going back to daycare and being seen by trusted adults outside of their home, we're seeing an uptick and, you know, and a really concerning sign that children have been abused in recent months, but have just simply not been seen. I mean, the good news is with kids being back into public places and being seen by teachers and other school staff, uh, that these reports are coming to the surface and kids will have access to help. And most importantly, that families will help have, have helped to be able to keep kids safely at home. Now, do you think it's accurate, Sarah, to say that, okay, kids have all their own issues that they are dealing with, but they're also perhaps internalizing their parents' issues as well, the family issues? Yes, of course. I mean, absolutely. Children, even very young children, pick up on the stress that their parents are facing. Uh, You know, parents are, in many cases, at their wits' end, you know, 
even before the pandemic, many families struggled from paycheck to paycheck and then had that ripped out from under them. You know, parents were juggling, caring for their kids 24-7 for months on end. You know, all of this has taken a huge toll, not only on kids, but the whole family context. And so, you know, it's really, you know, we have to keep that idea of the, you know, the oxygen mask on the airplane in mind that our you know, parents need to be, you know, feeling their own tank, looking after their own mental health in order to meet the needs of their children. Are kids also feeling that financial pinch that their parents are feeling? Of course they are. You know, every, you know, families across the country have been hit hard um, you know, by the pandemic that, you know, families are really struggling to keep a roof over their head, keep food on the table. Uh, you know, we're, we're hopeful that, you know, with the, the economy gradually reopening, that we'll see signs of, of families being able to meet their needs. But, you know, child poverty and family poverty was a huge issue even before the pandemic, and it's certainly gotten worse in recent months. And, uh, you know, we're hoping with kids returning to school that they'll have access to the breakfast and lunch programs that many of them require and depend upon for for Mm -hmm. daily nutritious meals. Uh, But there's still a long way to go to be able to meet the needs of kids from coast to coast to coast. Yeah, what do we hope people will take away from this report? What do you want people to hear? Well, really, you know, we're bringing the alarm bell that the kids are not all right. Kids have suffered gravely. You know, lots of measures are put in place for this pandemic to protect all Canadians and particularly the most elderly among us. Uh, but, you know, clearly children have paid a heavy toll for that. And we need to be thinking about them and have them at the heart of our recovery efforts. We're really calling on all levels of government and the federal government in particular to put children first in the recovery efforts and make tangible investments in the health and well-being of our children. All right, Sarah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for speaking with me. That's Sarah Austin, founder and CEO of Children First Canada. They've compiled information from all different organizations like Stats Can and the Kids Help Phone and breaking down the stats showing that kids are worried. Their mental health is somewhat worse or much worse than it was prior to this pandemic starting. 57% of kids age 15 to 17 said that.